This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. As fiscal austerity is an enduring challenge for the foreseeable future, federal agencies have a greater incentive to rethink traditional approaches to mission support and service delivery. Government executives can harness major technological shifts and adapt proven public sector and commercial best practices to make their agencies both more efficient and productive. With the implementation of its new Unified Financial Management System, UFMS, on time and within budget, the Department of Justice continually seeks ways to operate more efficiently and cost-effectively. UFMS has identified and standardized common business processes across the department, leveraged best practices to improve financial management and reporting, and provides department leadership with real-time financial data. What are the DOJ's key financial management priorities? How is UFMS enhancing decision-making across the enterprise? And what made the UFMS implementation so successful? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Jolene Luria, controller of the U.S. Department of Justice. Jolene, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Good to be here. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Melinda Balthrop. Melinda, as always, welcome. Thank you. So, Jolene, what is the mission of the U.S. Department of Justice, and how has it evolved to date? Well, for me, I live by a simple but powerful phrase. And the people that know me and work with me are used to this term. If you wish for peace, work for justice. I actually have a mug in my office that was given to me early in my career when INS, Immigration and Naturalization Service, was still part of the Department of Justice. And I remind myself of that phrase every day because it characterizes everything that I do and every task that I perform and every task that we perform in the Department of Justice. So every day... Justice, we walk into the building, you know, sometimes it's trying, we smiling, crying, tired, scared, whatever. But it doesn't matter because as long as I work for the Department of Justice, I know that we're forwarding a more peaceful society. And we, I want to work in an organization that, that um, matures that vision. So from my days, it, you may ask me this later where I started my career as a music performance major to my dreams of working in a government that uh, serves the people. I've had that same drive and passion, living my life in a loving place that's surrounded by people that have the same values. So the mission of justice is peace. And the fundamental principle of the Justice Department, from my viewpoint, of course, that hasn't changed over time. That has not changed. So myself and the 114,000 other employees in the Department of Justice We're privileged to serve that mission and to work in a department that stands for a core value. We're a department that's a core value, and we never take that lightly. We don't produce a product or a widget. 
We don't make a profit. We're here to make better communities. And so you can read the uh, Department of Justice formal mission statement, you know, to enforce the laws and defend the interests of the United States. It's a hugely important function. We uphold the Constitution. We safeguard the country's rule of law. A document that I think I heard on the news the other day is one of the oldest written constitutions in the, in the land. And so what do we do? And I want to spend a little bit of time on this because you get a lot of questions on, well, what does the Department of Justice do? And it's, it's often in the news, and it doesn't always encapsulate what exactly we do. So when we enforce the laws, defend and protect our legal system in the courts, you allow others to live freely without fear. Enforcing the laws isn't the only way we deliver justice. But to me, Jolene Loria, I believe that you have a set of laws, and if you don't intend to enforce them or develop the ways to enforce them, systems of checks and balances, then over time those laws become inconsequential. Our country needs defenders of the Constitution, just like the military defends our security and our soil, and we must defend and enforce the laws of the land. I believe people don't always understand that you need justice to allow us to remain free. So we protect Americans from violent criminals taking over our neighborhoods, from communities, from terrorists to invading our country, from cyber criminals taking over our intellectual property and destabilizing our economy. Equally as important, we prosecute those who violate our civil rights and liberties. The Justice Department is end-to-end justice, all aspects of justice, from preventing crime through youth programs to investigating crimes to lawfully detaining suspected criminals to producing them in court, protecting the judiciary. When we say justice spans over 40 organizations, the men and women who come to work with us every day, those are some of the things that we do in the Department of Justice. So um, with the scale of operation that you've just outlined, what kind of budget are we looking at and how many people – I think you mentioned the number of people that work at the Justice Department. And what's the geographical footprint? Well, the Justice Department has $26.2 billion in the current 2015 enacted appropriation. The geographical footprint, I think I've talked about this earlier, is it's worldwide. It's all over the country and it's, it's, it's in many offices overseas. Um, $27.3 billion. Seventy-six percent of those resources are in four key areas. Thirty-one percent is spent on the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI. Thirty-one percent of our resources go to prisons and detention. Seven percent to DEA or drug enforcement activities. And seven percent to the U.S. attorneys. You, you often hear about the Justice Department as being the largest law, legal or law firm in the country. But Sixty percent of the resources go to FBI and the prisons and detention area. So while we have about 10,000 lawyers, the department is 114,000 individuals. So that's kind of interesting. You know, 21.6 percent to law enforcement, $3 billion, you know, to litigating components, $6 billion to um, management and technology. So you could see that the department is many, many other things than the public generally knows. Jelena, I'd like to transition to your specific role Would you tell us more about your duties and responsibilities as the Deputy Assistant Attorney General Controller? What specific activities fall under your purview, and how does your division support the overall mission of the department? Well, first I'm going to talk a little bit about the Justice Management Division, and then I'll I'll tell you a little bit more about me specifically. So the Management Division and the position that I hold, we we actually help make the missions that I talked about earlier happen in, in many ways. You need operational experts on the ground and in the streets and in the courtroom to do their job and perform the mission. But you also need the infrastructure and program support to allow them to do the job. So in its simplest form, 
you know, you need money to put gas in agents' cars and contract and procurement mechanisms that actually buy and maintain the cars. And you need contracts to hire analysts and linguists and translators for, you know, criminal conversations, IT specialists to exploit computers that contain illegal content. So how do they get the money, contracts, gas in their cars? That's what the controller staff does. We have budget and financial analysts that make sure we get the money, spend the money, lawfully so that we're not violating laws and in a transparent way and then show value for money. I serve in the management arm of the Department of Justice. It's one of the highest career executive positions in the department, responsible for the entire department. So in doing so, I advise the assistant attorney general, the deputy assistant attorney general, and the attorney general on various issues related to the financial operations of the department. It's a unique position because you go from Understanding the big picture of the entire Department of Justice, you sit in a meeting advising and telling the folks that want to perform the mission how they can do it. But then I have to leave that big picture meeting and go down operationally and help and and then advise my staff on how to make it happen. So regarding your duties and responsibilities, the big picture and the little picture, what are the top, say, three management challenges you have faced in your position, and how have you sought to address those challenges? The top three management challenges, and it's interesting. I was here in 2009, and I looked at my notes as as to what I talked about then. Some of them are similar, and some of them are different, but my top three management challenges as I sit here today is people, and getting the right people, hiring the right people, and then keeping them. And it's become more difficult in in the recent time because, as you know, I I think that with the limited budgets, it's very difficult to get people in, hire them, and then sustain them and train them. If you ask any of my service directors, any of the people that work for me, hiring talented people has to be our is our number one management challenge. And then also finding the right people for the job. So it's people, 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 getting them, finding them, keeping them. Finding the right people for these jobs, they're difficult, they're challenging, they're not glamorous, they don't pay a lot of money, but they definitely um, give you a sense of accomplishment once you're in. But how do you attract people to jobs when you're competing with private sector jobs that quadruple in salary? So that's one management challenge. The second management challenge is technology. And, and two aspects of that technology. One is keeping up with technology. I think you will talk a little bit later about the unified financial system and, and implementing a system across the department over a number of years that changes versions and is upgrade needs to be upgraded when we barely got the resources and the money to do the first, you know, the first implementation. So keeping up with technology and government is a huge challenge. The second part of technology is just using the technology and understanding how to use it as as a tool so that we can perform the analytics that are we're constantly being asked, you know, why why did certain things happen and use the data and use the technology in a way. So so right now keeping up with it and using it are very big challenges in from a management perspective. So the massive information that we have to sift through and then analyze is is a challenge. And three unfunded mandates. <laughs> and I think um, that hasn't changed since the day I started the federal government till today. The, there's a lack of um, 
requirements analysis or a good financial sense of when, when the law is passed or a new requirement is laid upon a department or a specific um, component of a department, does it have the right resources, tools, people to get the job done? You would never start a business without you know, support function. You would never start a business without financial capital. But we pass laws that don't have money behind them. So unfunded mandates, because they become a law and we have to perform what's in the law, are a huge management challenge for us. And then my fourth one is sort of falls into the unfunded mandates. I think it was in the papers the other day. It's the budget stupid. (laughs) Somebody put that on my desk. I mean, the budget is the biggest management challenge. And and it's funny, almost oxymoronic for a controller to say that, someone who's in charge of the budget. It is the biggest challenge that we face today in the federal government, not knowing the resources that may be coming to us, constantly planning on either shutdowns or sequesters. The budget stressor for us and managing through that is a, is a is a big challenge. Along with the challenges you've described, Jolene, I'm sure your area can also be full of unanticipated surprises. What has surprised you most in your current role? This this I was um, reflecting on this question and thinking to myself, I cannot believe that this is what surprised me. But what has surprised me is I'm known in the Department of Justice as the champion for change. I've implemented unified system, and I'm doing a JMD service review that's making everybody really look at what they do and change in new directions. But what surprised me the most is people's unwillingness to to want to embrace the change. Now, I am a person who keeps their old pair of shoes forever. I'm comfortable in my old pair of jeans. I totally appreciate being comfortable in in your setting or in your personal life and in the things that you do. But when when you're trying to get a group of individuals or, or your workforce to move in a new direction in a job, from my view, that's pretty secure compared to the private sector, but trying to get them to embrace the change and move forward with it and realize it is it is somewhat without risk. I've been very surprised by how difficult that is and how reluctant people are to say, this is the way we did it last year, but we're going to try it a different way this year. And it's so surprising from you know personal and professional level, but also because the world changes so fast and the world is so ever changing outside our walls of justice. It's very difficult to get people in their own jobs to then constantly move with that change. So I, I, find, I find that surprising because the new generation is supposed to be all about change, <laughs> but it's very difficult to get people to change and do things a different way. Well, that's a nice segue into, I, I think it hints a little bit at your uh, leadership style and management approach. I'd like for you to give us a sense of what are some of the key leadership principles that you subscribe to and employ and perhaps you can share with us some anecdotes of, of you actually using them. Um, well, every everyone that works for me knows my priorities and passions. They even know my favorite color. In fact, we walked in the studio and someone said, you're wearing purple. So um, that's sort of my leadership trait that I wear in my heart and my passions on my sleeve. I tell people every day the things that I love and the things that make me happy and the things that motivate me and the things that they do that motivate me. So 
I never find that I have to tell them what makes me unhappy <laughs> because it's so obvious <laughs> that it's so obvious what makes me happy and what motivates me and what gets you know good kudos on the job. So I often say, you know, everyone says, oh, you're a very powerful person in the Department of Justice. How do you handle all that power? Well, I, I have to tell you that I'm a powerful person that never has to use her power because I have people and followers every day who know what my hopes and dreams are. It's not a secret. It's open and transparent. And they they subscribe to it and we execute it together. So I have um, a couple of principles that I've always managed to live by. And they may not sound like management principles mm-hmm. to management geeks, but I subscribe to them and they have both personal and professional application. I live with all I have and I give it all away. Everybody knows that when I come in to work, I give it all away. I go there every day to work as hard as I can, and I love what I do, and I give it away. I do that in my personal life, and I do that in my professional life. And I think that is the first principle of leadership is that the people don't know who you are and what your passions are. They don't know who they're following. And if they don't know who they're following, there's all sorts of suspected you know, what's her real agenda here? They don't have that with me. My second principle is live like there's no tomorrow. And that's personal and professional life. Personal life, obviously, that goes with, you know, you don't know tomorrow if you're going to walk out and, and still be here. So you should live your life every day. But in the professional world, it's, it's about a sense of urgency. It's very, very hard to get folks to have that sense of urgency and live like that and work like that every day. Oh, we can do this tomorrow. Oh, you don't have to sign this. You'll be here tomorrow. I never leave my office without clearing my desk because you don't know what's going to face you the next day when you come in the next day. So imparting that sense of urgency, like living like there's no tomorrow in everything you do, it may be tiring in the end, but it's also very rewarding. When I leave on a Friday, Hopefully I'm not working on the weekend, but when I leave on a Friday, I know I did everything I can do during that week to get as much as I can done. And then the third principle, give thanks and praise often and with sincerity. I can't stress enough of a leadership and management principle about that, about saying thank you, about appreciating people, about telling people they're appreciated, but you have to do it sincerely. You can't Make up a thank you. And everybody knows when someone says, oh, gee, thanks, and they don't really mean it. Everyone knows that right away. People sniff out that kind of lack of sincerity. But at least in my in my rule book, I don't thank you for something I'm not really appreciative of. I don't thank you for something somebody's told me to thank you for something. I find something that I feel deserves a, a reward, and people know that. So I can be silly and fun and dead serious in the same meeting. People love to go to my meetings. They never know what I'm going to say or what I'm going to do, but I'm a person that drives to success. But like I said, I can be fun and dead serious. I can deliver bad news with a smile, and I don't waste time. One of the things that um, during the early implementations of UFMS, some of the Government and contractors are trying to explain to me why we had gone off schedule, and I'm not going to explain the specific thing, but I just stopped the meeting and said, I don't have time for these stupid time wasters. And that became a phrase. If you come to my meeting with a stupid time waster, oh, I put this in somebody's inbox and they didn't open it, or I did... 
I, I just I, – that's not a real reason. That's a stupid time waster. That stupid time waster cost us time and money on a schedule. And so people learn that they don't, they don't come to me with stupid time waster explanations. And I always talk about – and I, this um, morphed from, you know, making sure that I'm the – I am the change agent of the department. But if people are not following, I do subscribe to lead, follow, or get out of the way. It sounds ruthless sometimes, but if you're not willing to lead the change, if you're not willing to follow the change, then find another place to work. And and that sounds a little bit tough, but it's the only way that you can move some of these large um, changes in the government. So I'm not a prescriptive person. I'm not a micromanager. I'm sort of more of a free spirit that you know, tells you what our, where I want to go, and we all get there, but we don't get there in a sequential line. We get there as sort of in a group. What are DOJ's key financial management priorities? We will ask Jolene Luria, controller of the U.S. Department of Justice, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can DOD improve its acquisition processes? Check out the latest IBM Center report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. The authors emphasize the urgency of acquisition reform in DOD, given budgetary constraints and security challenges, finding that DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while resisting the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. This report continues the IBM Center's interest in better understanding and improving the federal government acquisition process. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Government leaders and managers face major challenges today, including fiscal austerity, citizen expectation, the pace of technology and innovation, and a new role for governance. These challenges influence how government executives lead today, but more importantly, how they can be prepared for tomorrow. The IBM Center report, Six Trends Driving Change in Government, offers a path forward for government executives responding to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges they face today. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Jolene Loria, controller of the U.S. Department of Justice. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Melinda Balthrop. So, uh, Jolene, would you give us an overview of your top priorities and the strategic vision that frames the critical mission support function you perform? And perhaps you could identify or describe some of the key initiatives and strategies you're pursuing. For me, and, and it's, it's sort of an inside the government Finish what we started. I tell people that all the time. It's it's a key priority of mine because the government, or at least the d- domestic discretionary side of the budget, which is primarily all of the Department of Justice, it's an annual appropriation. But many of the things that we do cross a fiscal year, mm-hmm. and they require staying power, and they require you to stay on the vision and to constantly justify what you're doing. And we have to we have to finish what we started. So the unified financial system, and it's one of the key initiatives, it has already spanned more than 10 years. And the reason that it's spanned more than 10 years is because the department has 40 components and has had many financial systems that we've had to collapse into one. But it takes a long time to finish what you start. Now, it may not be finishing it every year the same way you started, but finish what you start. So that's my one of my key priorities. We're getting ready to get to embark on the final frontier for the unified system. 
my staff knows it affectionately as Utopia Unified. <laughs> Topia. Utopia. Yeah. It's hard to do without the visual. We have the Starship Enterprise that we're getting on. And I tell now, this is the more interesting part the final frontier of Utopia in means that the last legacy system was a system that the Justice Management Division developed. And so we have to give up our own system. So I constantly tell the staff that um, when they're getting on board the Starship, and once we take off, you have to be on the sh- ship or we're going to leave you, you know, and we're going to be you know, circling the atmosphere. So we're getting everybody on board the Starship to Utopia, and that's our final phase. And when we're there, you know, we're going to be in financial nirvana, as you can envision. The second priority is saving money in everything we have in every way we can. Because the government, obviously, I mentioned this earlier, the budget is challenging and it's ever decreasing. There's not there's not a day that goes by that I don't look for efficiencies in the department. I'm the lead for the Attorney General Save Council. Okay. We saved hundreds of millions of dollars in small initiatives. Some of them were poked fun at about double-siding paper, but it saved millions of dollars. So you can make a joke about it, but then you can tally up all the dollars that we saved double-siding paper, and you'd say, oh, my gosh, why didn't we do that before, to, to big things like, you know, consolidating contracts and that save hundreds of millions of dollars. So I think to date, just our, just our save council, and that's just the things that we have been able to track and record, we've saved over $300 million on our own initiative. doesn't get talked about a lot, but it's, a, it's an ongoing mission priority. We have to save every penny that we have because we need to invest in the important missions that I talked about in the first part of this interview. We, um, we can't waste money on small things because there's big things and unfunded mandates that we, will, we may never receive an appropriation for. Um, and then the third priority is asking for the right money in the right places and fighting for it until we get what we need. That's sort of the budget controller mission. It's so difficult to receive a budget and then execute it, but making sure it's in the right places and we have the resources applied where, where we need resources and we ask people to tighten their belts where they have to, where they can tighten their belts, that's always a priority. For the Office of Controller, every year I have my directors identify and nominate priorities that we track throughout the year. And some of them I couldn't share on a, on a public radio because they're things that we're doing internally, but they, they basically revolve around those things. You know, finish what we started, you know, save money in every area that we can, and then get money for the department's missions in the right places so that we can, so that we can perform the missions. On the topic of UFMS, um, I'd like to continue our discussion around your progress to date. What were some of the key implementation challenges you faced as a result, and how have you worked through them? I was thinking about the unified system, and the folks that are on my team were such a strong team now because almost like going through the tough mudder, if you can, can you, if you can picture that, it's been messy from the day we started it until it's all of its successes today, and it's been messy because 
if you imagine seven legacy systems and systems that people in the Department of Justice designed, developed, implemented, and still work on, you know, 20 years later. So you have to, you have to, we're implementing new technology, but we have to bring people along to give up their legacy systems and go to a place they've never been to before. So it, it, the challenge, that whole change management challenge of the unified system it can't even be understated. But for those of us who've gotten in the mud, in the tough mud, and made it work, we are so strong now that it's become our success. Because now we feel that as we have implemented in each organization that has a different culture, different challenges, different infrastructure, now that we've gone through that tough mud, we feel like we can we can do anything that comes comes in front of us. So so just that whole you know challenge of the change management, but also the challenge of realizing that as we implement the unified system, this eight, every 18 months there's an upgrade. And I talked about this earlier. Your technology changes. You have to adapt to the technology. And, you know, imagine that we never really received quite enough money from the beginning, and it's costing us more and more money as we go along the way. So being strategic on when we take the upgrades and when how, how we bring the customers along and how we have to hold some people back from wanting the new changes and then incorporate the new changes to the newest customers. It's It's been a difficult project. So the, the size of the project and just the change management aspects and the, and the way that we have to implement it over the years has been the, the um, difficult parts of implementation. Jolene, I've heard many refer to UFMS as one of, if not the most successful financial management system implementation in the federal government. Would you elaborate on your keys to success and what best practices have you employed? One of the main keys to success is our resiliency. We have to stay focused on the vision, talk about the value of the unified financial system throughout the implementation, and be resilient, be able to adapt to changes and change as we implement the program along the way. And um, one of the things that was difficult in the beginning, but not difficult at all today, was when we get into program implementation and we find that the implementation plan we used last year is not working this year, people aren't afraid to change it. And in the beginning of the implementation, Everything was very rigid. We had to commit to an exact go-live date. That was disaster because until you get into unraveling what exists in an organization and you then have to implement it and then go live, that date is going to change. But people were afraid to change the date. And in the first implementation, people were going to implement on that date no matter what because that was a public commitment. So once we took that out of the equation, that we could be iterative in our in our development. Obviously, we have to stay within the budget and implement, but the fact that we could adjust our plans along the way and a little bit of re- relaxing that became our success. So one of the organizations was supposed to go live. Everyone wants to go live October 1. If we wanted to change it October 1 to October 15, we had to ask permission and we had to go, you know, beg for forgiveness But there are very good reasons to slip the date. When there are very good reasons to slip the date, it's not that you've been unsuccessful. It's that you're wiser in your implementation. And that whole 
evolution of you have to do things a very prescriptive way to being more iterative and resilient along the way, I think has, has been our secret to success. And, and I would be remiss. I don't like to talk about myself per se, but my staff would probably say that the executive focus and the executive leadership for the project and sustaining that throughout the project was key. And I know that they would attribute that to my strong commitment to the project. You would talk, they would talk about how I never get off the train. I never get off the train. Even if we're at a station and everyone's getting off at that station, I'm still on the train. Um, and that is important for the people that you're leading. But the other important aspect, if you realize that we've implemented the system across administrations, Republicans and Democrats, and through many attorneys general. And so that in and of itself, that leadership executive sponsor, no matter who's in the driver's seat, you know, in the ultimate driver's seat, has been critical to the project. Because every time there's a change, either in administration or the top leaders, the people that don't want to adopt the change look for ways to slow it down. And we have not slowed down our, our um, vision, our path, our reality. And it's why we're embarking on the, the final path to utopia. So I think you mentioned it was widely successful. And I have to say, I feel like we're a two-time Grammy Award winner. <laughs> we had two Federal 100 awards, but also managers on the project have received awards for their specific aspects of the implementation. So we are wildly successful. It's hard for me to say. I don't like to talk about my personal success, but this project has had success not just for me, but for many people in the organization. And the early uh, implementers who were difficult uh, for us in the beginning because we were learning about the project now rave about the system that they fought against us to implement. Um, also, that you know, just just when you look at the scope of the system and the fact that we've been able to time and time again turn on a new financial system without lo losing our clean audit opinion, I think that's never been done in the federal government. So when, when um, you say wildly successful, I have to put that out there because people don't like to talk about how successful it is, but it is wildly successful. Along with the process and technology changes, systems implementations can be marked by people challenges, as you discussed earlier. Uh, let's explore the people side of the move to UFMS. How did you prepare the workforce for such a change, and what are you doing in the area of continuous improvement related to workforce change management issues? Well, preparing the workforce um, has been has been difficult because in each organization that we implement this new system, they have to obtain new skills mm -hmm. on uh, on a bubblegum and toothpicks kind of budget. You know, there's not a lot of money for training. So one of the things, one, is that I stay interested and stay on the game and make sure the people that, who are going to be implementing the system and the staff are ready for it and they go out and get training and they participate in with, with the uh, contractors on how to operate the system. So just staying in the game, putting them in the, the right situations to learn how to use the system is critically important. They have to implement a new system but lear and learn how to use it and then teach other people how to use it. And it's it's that whole training aspect of, of using and, and learning a new system is how we've been able to keep our project successful. So, Jolene, switching gears from financial management systems, 
uh, to financial operations. What are you doing to enhance financial operations within the department? What steps have been taken to better track and manage costs, such as cost of investigations, expand the use of financial data to inform management decisions? So I had this this, this big UFMS <laughs> <laughs> popping in my brain when I said that. That I mean, that is the the number one initiative that's going to help us manage our financial operations because. I don't know if you can appreciate going from seven systems to one, but maybe I need to paint a picture about what seven systems as a controller means. It means that you know when um, when somebody asks us what's your current you know spending rate in the Department of Justice, I could never answer that question because if you have seven systems that you have to track and independent components operate those systems. There was no one view to say, where are you at current state of operations? So UFMS, when we're all on the same system and we have a centralized way of reporting that information, is going to improve, not just improve answering questions, but allowing us to ask our own questions across the department to see where the money is being spent, how it's being spent, and and just doing some data analytics. So that's that all by itself is going to um, improve financial operations, and it already has in many ways. The other thing that we've done or that I lead, and I, I mentioned this earlier, is the SAVE Council and creating the culture of savings. And in 2009, the president asked uh, federal agencies to come up with savings initiatives, and they, they, he challenged everyone to find uh, different ways to achieve. They put a marker down. I think it was $100 million. At that time, we, and we, we came up with 20 separate initiatives that we thought would re- materialize in that, in that savings. Today, we have over 140 suggestions that have come in the door. People, in fact, just before I left for this uh, interview, somebody called and says, is it too late to get my savings idea in for the next report out? And that's the kind of thing that I think um, it's, it goes, it's not talked about. It's not seen outside of the agency. But creating that culture to save mm-hmm. improves operations because we don't just save money. We look for ways to be more efficient across our organizations. And the third initiative that I'm leading personally is what we're calling affectionately the JMD, Justice Management Division Service Review. We operate a working capital fund where we deliver services, enterprise services, to the department's components. And some of them they sign up to willingly and some of them they sign up to unwillingly. But what has happened over time is that the services that we deliver, some of them are outdated, some of them are outmoded, some of them we can't really explain why we do it. We've always done it this way. And to be honest, we've never really peeled the onion back and looked at what the cost drivers of those services are. So we have now embarked on a review where we're looking bottom up at the Justice Management Division on our costs, like an activity-based cost review, but we've done it to ourselves, and we have now laid the foundation to examine those costs and set our prices according to cost. And that, to me, when we're finished with that initiative, right now we've laid the foundation, identified the cost in a common and consistent way. Setting the prices for our customer is a whole nother aspect of it. But then asking why it costs so much is the more critical aspect. And so that whole service review looking at ourselves, setting the dial so that we can now examine our costs and then justifying those costs in a transparent way is going to change the way we do business in in the Department of Justice. So now you've made tremendous strides in terms of getting all of your 
financial data into one system. What's next? And what other opportunities are there to increase financial management effectiveness and efficiencies that you're thinking about? Well, in, bo- in both of those changes, if you think about the unified system as well as um, the justice review, the internal review, we're trying to create a foundation so that we can collect up our financial information and then look at it and analyze it. We fall short of the data analytics. We fall short in where we will pull up, we'll, we'll create a, sped, a spreadsheet, but we haven't asked the questions as why those, those particular items are on the spreadsheet. So we're telling our story. We're more transparent in our story, but we're not analyzing that story on our own. Other people outside of the Justice Department are pulling our data and creating stories and asking us back why it's like that. But we need to do it more internally, proactively on our own. And that's really where uh, I'd like to get to as the controller that we tell our story, we pull our own data analytics, and we connect the dots from a financial perspective, so that we can change on our own, but using the data that we um, we have created. One of the women that worked for me uh, commented that we just we have so much data, but we don't use it in a way that advantages our operations, and we need to start using the data in more constructive ways. How does the U.S. Department of Justice use collaboration and partnerships to achieve mission results? We will ask its controller, Jolene Loria when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. In a world inundated with all kinds of information, timely, relevant, and more predictive data can drive better decision-making. Law enforcement agencies are at the forefront in leveraging data and using innovative software to generate predictions that help police prevent crime. What is predictive policing? How can using analytics make us safer? Check out the IBM Center report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics by Jen Bachner, and find out. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What do agency leaders need to know about the federal acquisition process? What are some of the key federal procurement trends? And how can agency leaders overcome today's acquisition challenges? Check out the new Center report, A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition, by Trevor Brown and find out. The report offers practical recommendations for improving federal acquisition. Download your free copy of A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Jolene Loria, controller of the U.S. Department of Justice. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Melinda Balthrop. So, Jolene, given OMB and Treasury's uh, focus on the four shared services providers, can you talk to us about how DOJ fits into this landscape? Do you anticipate Justice becoming the fifth shared service provider? I not only anticipate it, but I welcome it. I um, I, I talked about Utopia, the final you know the final frontier for the unified system. Well, after we've built this amazing system. Why not be a shared service provider? Why not uh, take what we've learned and what we've perfected and then service other federal agencies who wish to use our product? 
so I, I anticipate it. I see that as, as the next step. We are actively engaged with OMB and Treasury on becoming a shared service provider for the Momentum product. But we have a couple of criteria. First, we'll go back to my priority. <laughs> we have to finish what we started. We have to – I have to protect – the fact that we need to finish justice's implementation and get get our entire organization on it. And I think the learning that we have achieved in all of the organizations that we have implemented make us a perfect shared service provider because we will then use all of that sort of tough mutter spirit and when another federal department says, well, we, we, we shouldn't be a, a doctor application because we're so different. I mean, we have 40 different components on our system. We know how to implement a system with common, consistent processes, but configure it so that it works for the user. And so I think we would be a perfect shared service provider because of the lessons that we've learned in sharing and implementing it throughout the Department of Justice but we um, have the engagement that we are uh, talking about with OMB is we have to finish what we started first before we then deliver that to other folks. And then the, the second part about it, uh, the shared service provider that I, I think is critical is that once we become a shared service provider, don't leave us on a limb. You know, <laughs> we we have to, you know, constantly feed that product and constantly, like I said, keep up with the upgrades and the changes in the system and the product so that when we deliver it to um, outside of the Justice Department, we're not delivering yesterday's technology. I probably didn't say this, but that is one of the main challenges in the in the federal government and the Department of Justice. As soon as we implement something, it's already old technology. It's like sending the space station up in, in orbit and it gets up there and all of a sudden the technology is old. You can't bring it back down. But for us, just staying current with technology is such a challenge because the money aspect but also the learning aspect. So I'm welcoming uh, without there is some risk there, welcoming being the fifth shared service provider, looking forward to it, but with the caveats that we need to finish what we started, and then we need a commitment if we're going to be a shared service provider for the government that we stay current and, and be the best in, be the best in in the game. As DOJ's performance improvement officer, would you tell us more about your efforts in conducting timely performance reviews of the components? In what ways do these reviews drive accountability, align expectations and priorities department-wide, and encourage data-driven decision-making? Well, I, I have to start by saying, as you know, I'm the the department's performance improvement officer, but I, I always start a meeting by saying I'm the oldest performance improvement officer in the government, and then everybody laughs because there may be people older than me in age, but I am the first performance improvement officer in the Department of Justice in 2007, and I'm still the, still the performance improvement officer, and I've seen performance improvement officers come and go be sometimes because they were in a political position when they were performance improvement officer, but sometimes just because they've cycled out. So I've um, witnessed the performance improvement effort from the beginning of the PIO till today. So I've seen a lot of changes. And I think what um, instills sort of the data-driven performance reviews is the fact that you have a performance improvement <laughs> officer, the fact that you, the government now is required to have quarterly status reviews, that we have meetings with the chief operating officer of the organization and we talk about performance. 
I never really worry about what's on the pieces of paper that we're presenting. Whether you know what we do with the data, I just I care mostly about the conversation because it's not always about what's in the quarterly status report or what's in the data. It's about having the conversation and getting uh, the department at the highest levels to react and then implement a change because of it. So I don't focus so much on the on the specific reporting compliance aspects of the performance improvement officer, but the fact that we're having data-driven reviews, the fact that we get together on our priorities and look at metrics and then drive change, I mean, that that's to me um, what it means to have a successful performance improvement effort in the department. That won't be done without some sort of collaboration and partnership. And I, I get the pleasure of asking many of my government executive guests about their use of collaboration and partnerships among agencies and, and with the private sector to achieve mission results. Uh, Jolene, would you tell us how you're leveraging partnerships to improve operations or outcomes? And to what extent, uh, given your success with UFMS, has collaboration and partnerships drive innovation? Well, first, it drives success. There's nothing that I do... In, in my job without collaboration or a partnership with somebody because I am in an oversight capacity and I have to collaborate with sometimes 40 different components but mainly the big bureaus in the department to get them to do things that they not necessarily would do and the only way that you can drive common consistent decision making is by collaborating with other folks and so it's part of my vision and mission as the controller. We, I'll give a s- small story about that. We, um, we sit at the top of the department and we view, review agencies' budgets and spending, and we have the power and control, if we choose to use it, to move money around the department to achieve certain objectives. And we, we have the power to take it from one organization and move it to another one. That never happens in a happy meeting. <laughs> never happens pleasantly. And nobody likes to give up something that they believe was given to them for the benefit you know, of another organization. So we, how do you do that? You do that by collaborating across components, and you do that by relationship building and figuring out ways to satisfy everybody's objectives. So we couldn't do our job without collaborating with the the justice components, but we also couldn't do our job without collaborating with the private sector. So I mentioned earlier we have um, the JMD service review. We we could not have done that without leveraging private sector expertise to come in and help us set a foundation and set, set up set up a system of cost performing metrics so that then we have a platform to work from. So we collaborate all the time um, with the private sector, bringing in their expertise where we know we don't immediately have it but have to create a change. And hopefully uh, we either learn how to do what the private sector is doing or they become what we call structural contractors in the department. They they per- actually perform like a government employee. So um, collaboration... It, in everything we do, whether I'm collaborating with the CIO, the chief information officer of the department, so that we can make sure that we're stepping in sync, whether I'm collaborating with other department components uh, on their budgets and their financial operations, whether I'm collaborating with the private sector to get them to help us achieve an objective, it, it I couldn't do my job without that aspect. You brought up the private sector, and I just want to ask this question about um, how can the private sector better help improve the efficiency and effectiveness of government's financial management function? I'm just going to answer it, you know, it's like what 
what can you do for what have you done for me lately or what's the most recent thing on my mind i think that the private sector can help us in the technology area in particular and when there are new products why not just train us for free why not just train have open days where you can you know invite 10 people from the government to learn your product because i feel like the training aspect of technology is so huge getting individuals to learn how the product works that's step 1 then once they learn how the pro- how the product works we don't really get the efficiencies until we exploit that product until we actually use it to its fullest capacity i i can sit in front of you today and tell you that unified financial system is wildly successful i know there are modules of ufms we haven't even opened we don't even know how to use them because we're we haven't been fully trained we're we're implementing what we know and i i i think if the private sector were to step into my world and just say you know i want people to adopt business analytics and and the smart technology tools but the learning curve is so huge and the resources are so limited to train that if the private sector would have more free training days or open you know exploration days so that we can basically learn it and then take it inside the organization it would help us immensely it would help us to adapt to the change a lot quicker and i think it would help the private sector because they would then have us wanting to use their product before we <laughs> we even we even uh, attempted to use it so i think just being a little bit more innovative on how to introduce new technology to the government in in some ways you know you can't take a free gift all, all the time in the public sector but there are ways that we can make it easier for us to adapt to new technology Jolene given the crucial and strategically important role financial information plays in mission and program delivery how has federal financial management evolved to become more of a strategic business partner and from your perspective what are the key characteristics of an effective federal financial and budget executive. Well, I I started out and probably long-windedly talking to you from my perspective about the things that the Justice Department is and does. Financial management isn't, you know, about the green eye shades and and <laughs> accounting and and you know, everyone said, "Are you an accountant?" I was put that out there, I'm not an accountant. Um but financial management has become a key player it only becomes a key player when you understand the mission mm-hmm. that you're trying to deliver and that you sit on at the table as a partner in helping that mission and service delivery so the reason that i spend so much time talking about the mission is because i want my organization to say it believe it and understand it otherwise we really are just green eye shades moving pennies from one you know ledger to another i i i never want a financial management expert in my organization not to understand that and i think that gets to what we talked a little bit earlier about the challenges of of training mm-hmm. uh getting the mission support functions out in the field and out to experience the mission itself is hugely beneficial. So when we implemented I have t- tons of stories, but when we implemented UFMS, 
when we go from one organization to the other, we would have some of our kickoff meetings. Like we went down to Quantico mm-hmm. for FBI so that folks that work for me for years have never been to a firing range, for example, in the FBI or have never been to a ride-along with the Marshals Service or have never been to the fire research lab of ATF. But when you're implementing a system that's supposed to support those kinds of functions without having the opportunity to see what they do and why they do it, I think that you miss the mark. And then you become uh, the green eyeshade accountant that they consult to after after their work is done. And you miss opportunities to become strategic in that in that business relationship. And so I think that my organization, and I, I, I can say that for a fact, is not like that. Mm-hmm. We sit at the table with those that perform the mission and come up with creative and collaborative ways to help them perform the mission. I started talking earlier about what the budget finance function does, and we have the opportunity to be, to be very critical. We have the opportunity to take resources from one and give to the other, but we don't do that. We sit down at the table and say, okay, here's the objective we want to achieve. Here's the way we see it best achieved. What do you think? And then they give us their answer. And sometimes we always come to the common solution at the end. That's the only way that you can be an effective business partner. So, Jolene, uh, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Well, for me, the advice is is pretty simple. I mean, I, I talked about my slogan, if you wish for peace, work for justice. So I always want people to come work for justice. But in the um, public sector, I, I would just say just do it. Mm-hmm. It is an amazing um, career. It's an amazing experience. There, there are so many things that I do on a daily basis that uh, – I couldn't even explain in an interview, but in the, at the end of the day, the job or the or the function that you perform, if it's about a paycheck, we all know the old the adage, you know, you come into this world with nothing and you leave with nothing. The paycheck is really not going to change that what what you came in with and what you left with. But if you can leave the world something behind, that's I think an immensely powerful. Uh, reason to take a job. And so when you work at the Department of Justice or in many public sector organizations, you leave a better community, you leave a freer society, you leave something behind after you've performed your job that's that's not about the money. And so to me, you know, when you're looking at a career and you say, oh, I can make double digits if I was in this uh, private sector entity or I can work for the government and never get trained and, you know, be abused and, and complained about every day. That's that's just fodder. That's not exactly what happens when you come inside the federal government or you come inside the halls of justice. You realize immediately that you're creating profound change and safer communities. And it's hard not to love something like that. So my advice would be just do it. Just just do it. Well, Jillian, thanks for your time today. I mean, your passion really comes through in this interview. Uh, and I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy day. But more importantly, Melinda and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Jolene Loria, controller of the U.S. Department of Justice. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
What are the key strategic priorities for HUD? How does HUD position itself as the Department of Opportunity? What is HUD doing to improve its operational performance? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Nani Coloretti, Deputy Secretary, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. 